You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Dr. Latoro Yates. Dr. Yates is a motivational speaker and executive director of enrollment management at York College of the City University of New York. When addressing crowds as a speaker, Dr. Yates includes three key components in each and every talk, his mother, his high school, and his hometown. During our conversation, we spend quite a bit of time talking about how all three helped shape him as a man. Dr. Yates' entire village was supportive of his journey to success. He received that support from places you would not even expect, but it took some time for Dr. Yates to get out of his own way and see a clear path for himself. He eventually did the internal work necessary to achieve outward and now encourages others, especially young men, to do the same. There is so much more to Dr. Yates' story, and I won't try to break it down here. So without further ado, take a listen and enjoy. Dr. Yates, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Thanks for being here. We've been trying to get this one on the books for a few months now. Yes, yes. And it's finally happening. Yes, I think it, it would be well worth the wait. So, oh yes, I'm excited. I can tell by the energy you came in here with and our brief conversation. I just said before we hit record, I, I got a feeling this is going to be a good one. Yes. I've listened to some of your podcasts Mm -hmm. before, so I I actually look forward to the opportunity just to follow in the footsteps of some of the guests because some of the stories have been really palpable. And um, if it it moved me in that way, I can only think it's helping to also move people within your audience. Well, I appreciate that because some people come in here, they won't be named, still asking (laughs) what the podcast is about. So (laughs) So not that big time yet. Maybe, so, maybe the next time we do it. The next time we do it, you're going to be like, have we met before? But let's jump into it. Yes. Who is Dr. Latoro Yates? Okay. So I think the best way to describe me is every speech that I give, I talk about uh, three things. Sadie, Lincoln High School, and Jersey City. Sadie's my mother. Um, I was raised by a single mother. Um, I graduated from a public high school in Jersey City, Lincoln High School. And um, Jersey City is an urban hub. It comes with all the trappings of, of what of, um, some of the issues that are um, that are in um, dominantly um, in, the, in the city. So I was born into violence. My father was murdered when I was 15 months old. Wow. So that alone with an older brother that's about 10, a middle brother that's probably five at that time, that alone created this trajectory for my life that was already set. And then growing up in some of the worst communities across the country on the eastern seaboard only added to that story. So my life has been fighting against what the preset story has been for me. And um, a lot of mistakes along the way, a lot of growth along the way. But what I can say is that in those bad decisions that I made, I grew the most in those moments. So you mentioned growing up in in Jersey City. Now people hear Jersey City right today and they think a certain demographic. They think waterfront, beautiful properties. Gold Coast. Um, Exactly. Like (laughs) great commute into the city. Tons of commuters live there. But there's Jersey City Mm -hmm. and then there's Jersey City. And while it continues to change, there are still pockets of the area where you roll through and you're like, it it literally is like two different places, right? 
So you grew up in that and quite frankly, born into trauma. Yes. Right. And, and having um, experienced that very, very early. Yeah. What were the circumstances surrounding your father's death? So um, my father in his later years was a heroin addict. And I think throughout the course of his young life, he died at 28. He was more of a recreational uh, drug user. Mm -hmm. And the last 18 months of his life is what um, led him down that path. But frankly, he was um, a hard worker, but he was addicted and he was a hustler type. And his best friend shot him in the back seven times. Wow. And I was in Richmond, Virginia. So my mother had actually packed up the kids and moved, was moving us to South Carolina because she didn't want us growing up around it. And um, the weekend we left is the weekend that he was shot. So uh, again, that, that trauma just... Um, it was something that we were fighting from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about my oldest brother who at the time maybe was 10 and he became the man of the house. And he literally took that seriously at 10. But at six years later, he was a father himself. Wow. So again, it's just these moments that keep stacking on top of each other. Whereas in hindsight, on the other side of it, um, one of the things I wish my mother would have done, and Sadie did so many things that were just unbelievable. I mean, she achieved well above, um, I would say, any mother has, just because of like her, her stick to itness. Mm -hmm. But I wish she would have um, helped us to deal with the trauma. Because there's no way at 10 years old that my oldest brother know how to be a father. But he, again, he took it as serious as he could. He, I mean, braiding hair, fixing lunches. Um, if, if something's happening, he's the one that's going to go outside. So at 10 years old, he's walking outside to deal with whatever's coming that way. So my mother worked in fast food her whole career and um, he took care of the home. So mm -hmm. she did the work and he did the work at home. And he sacrificed a lot of his life to make sure that his two younger brothers had a, had an opportunity. And, you know, you, you hear these stories often, and, and I talk about this a lot, how particularly in our communities and our families, people experience these incredibly traumatic, life-changing things. Yeah. And we're not sent to therapy. Yeah. We're not sent to grief counseling in a lot of instances, especially you're talking about back then. Yes. Um, it literally is. We just got to pick up the pieces and, and figure out how to cope. And it's a miracle that People grow up carrying all of that weight that hasn't really been unpacked and become productive members of society Yes, in that instance. But it's also, it also creates the opportunity for dreams to be deferred. Mm -hmm. um, again, by, I can only imagine that if my, um, my oldest brother and my middle brother, and I think in life we are all pretty successful, but if my oldest brother didn't have to become that man at 10 years old, um, things would have slowed down a little bit for him. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was almost like he was had his foot with the pedal to the metal, like moving 100 miles an hour because he had to learn something so he could be able to transition that to his younger brothers. Mm -hmm. And um, I started going to therapy about November, would be two years. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part about me going to therapy was I went simply because I wanted to learn coping skills. So um, stress at the job. I'm a husband. I'm a, I'm a father figure. I'm a mentor. I'm a mentee. It's just, it's, it can be a lot of pressure. And I feel like um, one of my goals is always just trying to be a model. So if I take a step and I look back, there are people who are waiting to see what that step is. And when I make a step, they say, okay, 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 I can make that step. Mm -hmm. So that's what, that was the um, precipice for me to, to go to therapy. And I can say it's one of the best things that ever happened in my life because I was already on, I would say, a spiritual journey just trying to learn how to control impulse. So just to circle back a little bit, when we talk about growing up in Jersey City and the part where I grew up, um, one of the things you have to learn 
is to react to whatever comes your way. So as a little kid, you walk outside. My high school was two blocks from where I lived. And a left or right could be life or death in the way uh, my day is going to go, literally. So you react and you're reacting, you're moving. And again, you're moving 100 miles an hour. So as I started to grow and, and I mentioned spiritually, um, I just started reading the word. And that was probably about 1999. And I read the Bible as an exercise, cover to cover. Mm -hmm. And the more I started to read it in each year, I think now I've probably read it over the Bible over 20 times. That helped me to um, create that impulse control. Because I can honestly say, and I was proverbially, I guess, one of the good kids in the neighborhood. My mentality was savage. Like mm -hmm. I literally was, I, in my mind, I was going to seek and destroy. So the more I went on that spiritual journey and the more I started to read and the more I started to, to educate myself, I just learned how to um, control that impulse. So my first reaction isn't to destroy anymore. Now I'm not perfect with that. Mm -hmm. Like I was ready to get it going on my drive here. <laughs> But that's really, that's, that has been the blessing having God in my life has been, I think is what saved my life ultimately, because there's just so many opportunities on a daily basis to go astray and to be able to move, um, continue to move and be an example was important. So going to therapy only added to what the, I guess the path that I was on. Mm -hmm. And then simply to have someone say that it's okay. There's so many times that there are young people that are growing up in communities across the country and they just don't have someone to say that experience you, you went through is okay. You want to learn poetry, that's okay. You want to learn dance, that's okay. You want to wear a jacket with a pocket square, it's okay. Or the Saturday, right? When I was a little kid, that wasn't, that's, that's the piece that was missing. So I had an early vision of a man with a, a bald head, a suit, and a pocket square, a bow tie. Had this image, but because there was no one around me that I could touch and feel, and when I touched and it was around that person that didn't make me feel uncomfortable. And uncomfortableness, being uncomfortable came from that, that look or that eye. And I felt it was a judging eye. Mm -hmm. So because I didn't really have that, I rejected that vision. But that, re that vision is the, that I had when I was 12, 13 years old is the man I am today. So for over half of my life, I rejected who I was as a person. So again, going to, going to therapy and being able to give back and help others is what has helped me heal. Mm -hmm. So the more I move forward, the more I'm trying to just help people heal. So, you know, you, you talked about going to therapy later in yes. life. Take me back, though, to before that healing began, when you're yes. a child, you know, you have an, two older siblings who undoubtedly have recollections of your father. Yes. Good or bad recollections. Yes. You are 15 months old. Yeah. I would assume you have no memory, None. you know, of, of that. So... Growing up in, in the community where you probably knew other people who were in single parent homes, but your father was taken from you. How did you cope with sure. that? Did you have feelings of rage or, or bitterness? So that's, a, that's an interesting question because I gave a speech about a, about a month ago to a, a group of young men from Baltimore, Maryland. And at the end, one of the young men came up to me and said, how did you cope with growing up and not having a father? And I saw the hurt in this young kid's eyes. And he was, he was probably, he was a high school student. And something in me just had to be very honest with that young man. Because there's two parts to it. You have the part where you're sitting outside, it's Father's Day, mm -hmm. you see kids running around and they have fathers. You got you have that part. Then the other part of it is what was my what was my life trajectory if my father would have actually lived? Mm -hmm. Right? So in trying to grapple with both sides of it, I tried to craft an answer to tell a young man that it again it was simply okay. And what I said to him was, 
find someone younger than you and be a father figure to that person for what you want or what you expect or what you think it is to have a father. That's what I said to him. Another um, another way to answer that question is um, I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina. So in that community, um, in Pineview Hills, where I used to hang out, primarily it seemed like everyone, pretty much everyone there lived in a household with a mother and father. So I was one of the only kids that I could think of who didn't have a mother and father in the house. And for a lot of my experience in a very young age, I was I was ashamed in a way of not having it. And there were some parents, I think it may have been inadvertently, but they made me feel a certain kind of way without having a father. Really? Yeah. I, I remember that. And I remember my mother just working to the point to cover all bases. So I live in the same community. Our houses are worth the same, right? So it's two people in, in a house that's making this happen. There's one in my house that's making it happen. And I was too young to kind of really fully understand that you could have two people in the house, but if it's if love isn't the basis of what's inside that house, that person is probably lacking with having two people there from what I was experiencing with that one that was there. So um, as I, I was resentful when I was young, Growing up, um, I remember going to the elementary school and I'm pretty sure it was Father's Day. And my mother worked about a mile away. So she would drop me off at school, go clock in at Hardy's and um, come back in her uniform. And I, w- I remember sitting outside the gate and it's that 15 minutes, that 20 minutes, is that 30 minutes waiting for her to come back. And that feeling of despair, that feeling of isolation, that feeling of being alone. And because I'm watching the other kids out there with their fathers. Mm-hmm. But then Sadie would show up and we would beat everybody, sack race. <laughs> she was fast. Like, we would just destroy everybody. But um, I do know what that feel like to grow up and not have a father in the house. And um, I know that yearning desire to have that. But I think it's also important for young people to know that if you don't have it, you can make it. Like, you can, you can make it as far as being that father figure someone else or make it by just continuing to put one step in front of the other step and and start to kind of to think about what you do have in your home versus what you don't have. Because later in life, and um, I go back to the community often, and I as I became older, I was able to fully discern what love meant. And unfortunately, for some of those households that I um, that I admired, there wasn't a lot of love in those households. It was mm-hmm. a lot of dysfunction and a lot in those households. And then I moved to um, Jersey City at 13. So that was a great experience for me mm-hmm. <laughs> going from the South to uh, Jersey City in the middle of the crack epidemic. Wow. So that was a massive change for me. And I actually bought into the stereotype that there are no Black men, no Black fathers in the neighborhood. Mm. So up until probably maybe five years ago, I started to name the fathers in the neighborhood. So they were there. Like, it, I, I, can, I can't even think of one or more than two people who didn't have a father in the household. But you had bought into the but stereotype. Into it. Even as, a, as an adult, I had bought into it. And then what made me start to think differently was just seeing the role of the Black man in urban communities. And sometimes, um, for a myriad of reasons... That, that role could be diminished and it could be because of um, lack of employment, the type of employment, um, addiction, all these different things. And which is preventing, sometimes preventing um, that black male to step up in that leadership role mm-hmm. within the household. And the way to, in some houses, the way that the man is described in the household, because there's a lot of dysfunction and a lot of dysfunction and a lot of trauma and 
two adults just said, no matter what our shortcomings are, we're going to make sure that the young ones coming up are going to see a united front of love so that that way they have at least some training of how to deal with relationships as they grow up. But yeah, I, I bought into that stereotype, but there were so many fathers who took the time to make sure that we were okay. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing to me that I, in the experience, and I hung out with these the, the sons, so I knew these fathers. I can I can name all of them, but I I almost blanked them out of my youth growing up because there was this one um one father, Mr. Bush, who was kind of he seemed like he was the father for the entire neighborhood. But I think it was just more maybe he had healed to a certain point a little bit more than others. But yeah, the fathers was there. And um what I've been able to do over my life is take a piece from every mentor I've been around. And a lot of these mentors had no idea they were my mentor. Mm-hmm. But from from this, the way that I dress, from the way that I articulate words, from just the way I walk, a sense of confidence, lifting my head up. And I took that from a little piece here, a little piece there. And what I'm trying to do is to embody just a vision of hope for young people. And that's what I do on a daily basis. But I, I think there's a, an important lesson in one of the things that you mentioned in that you saw men in the community, but it took a long time before you really said, no, there was a presence. And I think that speaks to perception versus reality. And we often have a tape playing in our heads and we're looking through a lens of whatever our belief system is, whatever our principles are, whatever our personal experience is. And we're projecting that, even if that's not really what's coming back to us, which is, is why I have tried to implement in my own life, taking that moment and just taking a beat and saying, is this really what I'm saying that it is? Or am I just viewing it from a position um, that I have certain biases based on my own experience already? And I think the more we have those internal conversations, the more we can see things from a different view, which sometimes can change how we feel about it and also how we approach the world, quite frankly. Yes. Education is the key Mm -hmm. for me. It's been the the driving force in my life. And um, undergrad... I graduated from St. Peter's University and I right before I graduated, I had this kind of like an 18 inch matted fro thing going on. <laughs> I had the Timberland boots, I had the vest and I just had this anger that was inside of me. And I walked on that campus and you know, it's so interesting, like I could walk down a hallway and I would see a professor and she would jump because she was startled. Now, I took it as I'm walking on the right side of the steps the way you should proceed. Mm-hmm. She's walking down the wrong side and not paying attention yet. She startled at me. So she would jump like she startled and I would jump like I was startled. But when I think back at that person, me right now, I would be scared of that person. <laughs> so that's what I tried to, uh, that's when I'm, when I'm talking about, when I talked about impulse control, that's the thing I'm trying to pass down to the youth. And um, because I define myself, I had the, uh, I had the, the, the costume of the urban hood thug. There was nothing urban hood thug about me. I was the good kid. Mm-hmm. I used to sit out there with the guys who was putting in work. But they call me country. And they were like, nah, country, you can't. We about to go do this. Like, you can't do that. Yeah, you stay here. I was that kid. Oh, I was in the car. And they literally pull a car over like, nah, we about to go do this. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. And I also had um, a person say to me, you're going to be able to tell people that everybody where we live at is not crazy. You're going to be able to show people that everyone from Jersey City not crazy. And I'm thinking like, what do you mean? Like, why, what, me? Like, why me? Why I got to be that person? Why, why do I have to carry all that? And my friend said, that's what it is. So stop crying about it. Stop being upset about it and walk in your destiny. And these were hood dudes that mm-hmm. said. Like the, <laughs> this one guy in the neighborhood and he used to have, he used to 
be perched on this one corner. And this guy was poisonous to the community. Like he was literally pushing poison into our community. But this guy actually made sure all of us went to school. Wow. So that's the part of um, urban communities that I think that's so complex because there are people who are destroying it and trying to hold it together at the same time. So one of the things that was, that's important as a message is we don't have to destroy it to fix it. Like if we start taking baby steps, it's going to take a long time to get there. But if we start taking baby steps and we hand the baton to someone else, because when you're putting when you're putting in the work to um, from a social standpoint and you are volunteering, you are working in school systems, you are you're doing all the positive that you can in, in, in a given situation. It's easy to run out of gas mm-hmm. because you it's so many things that need to happen in a young person's life before they hit eighth grade. Seventh, eighth grade is the marker. Yeah. And by that time, a lot of them have already tapped out, unfortunately. And the work is, how do I get that? How do I reignite that hope in that young person? So for a person, single parent, growing up in poverty, has struggled in education through the eighth grade. We can't just say that person with that background is going to be the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's possible, but it's improbable. So let's set some goals for this person that can help them in a tangible next step. Because I think that's one of the things where we fail as a society, that somehow it's moved to either you're a super celebrity or you're a failure. Mm -hmm. So what happens to the electrician? What happens to the plumber? What happens to the teacher? What happens to the garbage man? What happens to all these professions like my mom, Sadie, working at, at McDonald's and Hardee's? What happened to doing that and being a success? And being able to take that person who I described and in the eighth grade, they ready to tap out. You create another way for them. It's not saying that you can't be the president, but if we're going to go there, this is what you have to do. Right. So it's a tangible steps. If a a young person lives in, in a gang infested environment, how can we help that person get across the street to go to school versus projecting 30 years down the line? This kid is like, I need to survive in school right now. What are those steps? And, um, too often, a person who's made a, a modicum of success will show up at a school, and I'm the one. Like, the bow tie. I love mm-hmm. my bow ties, right? I have my bow tie, my pocket square, and uh, I'm up there. But I, I don't speak from Dr. Yates, who's standing in front of you. I speak from the person who had to fight to get to this place. Mm-hmm. Because it's um, it's so often that it's lost in transition. Because maybe that young that young person who's looking at me, who may be exactly like me, will will think that they can't connect with me because oh, he don't know what he don't know what this experience is. So what I try to do is give a I get five minutes and I name those three I name those three things: Sadie, Jersey City, Lincoln High School, and I create that connection. But I don't want my entire experience to be about the pain because I don't own the patent on pain. Mm-hmm. There are people's stories way worse than mine. There are people who experience way worse things that I have in my life. And that's okay. Like I'm I'm okay with the fact that I have a war story to tell. But I think that the the tactical step by step, how do you move from that pain, from living below the poverty line? How do you move from that to try to reach a level of success based on what as an individual we deem as that level of success? Mm-hmm. So you landed on a path to success. Um, and, and I'm sure your mom, even though her career may have been in, in fast food, yes. saw something 
more for you. Sure. Um, and, and, and shout out to the moms who really held it down yes. on, you know, barely a living wage, I'm sure, right. and, and raising kids and sending them off to school. There's so many like that. And, and yeah. I think as an adult now, knowing what things cost, you know, that um, I remember sure. like when I first kind of got out of school and got, you know, really in college on my own, living in my own place and really started to think about like what it took to stretch a dollar and keep yes. the lights on and yes. keep food in your mouth. You think back to your, you know, how your mother did it mm-hmm. with limited resources and, and made it happen. Um, I, I, I still think about that and, and it, it makes me emotional because it ta- it takes so much for them to do it and do it with such grace and commitment to seeing that their kids had an even better shot than they, they did is commendable. It's, um, I do believe a woman can raise a man. Mm-hmm. Like I, I watched it. I, I grew up in it. Like I, I watched. Um, Sadie was a soldier. Like my mother. Like to see her cry with like I, maybe twice. Mm-hmm. And um, you know she passed away to be October sixth to be six years. She passed wow. away at sixty eight. But over those years, I maybe twice. And the interesting part to me is that my mother struggled. And I know she struggled because mm-hmm. I, I I have a memory of maybe seven years old, eight years old, somewhere in there. And I walked into her room, she, TV's on, TV's watching her, completely dark in the room. And she's just sitting in there rocking. Mm-hmm. So me, seven years old, I want a sandwich. I walk in, Sadie, I want a sandwich. And she said, okay, baby. And she's rocking. And then she kind of turned away from me. And again, I want a sandwich. So my mother's Superman. I see her fight teachers. Like she gets it <laughs> in, right? So this woman is not crying. Like I, I don't, I'm not, I can't comprehend that there's something that's hurting her. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I walk in the room and again and I'm and I talk to her and she said, okay. And then she's not moving fast enough. So I'm like, mom, what's going on? Like, you're gonna make me this sandwich. And then she got it together. And I can rem- even in the dark, I could see kind of her lift up and say, all right. And she got up and she went out and she made the sandwich. And and what made that memory pop back in my head was probably a few years ago. And I, I was going through a moment. Um, and it's probably during that time period after she passed away. But I was sitting in the room with the light off mm-hmm. and it was dark in the room. And it, I think that darkness made me connect to say, wow, that's what was happening in that moment. Maybe she was depressed. Maybe she didn't know how she was going to pay the bill. Whatever was going maybe she's mad at my father. Like, you left me to raise these three boys. Mm-hmm. And it hit me like, whoa, like, that's what was happening. Like, as an adult, I was reflecting and seeing that, man, like, that made her even more Superman. The right. fact that she made it through all of that with the smile and helping everyone. And that's what she instilled in me. So part of who I am is trying to provide as much as possible, trying to be generous. And that's generous with time more than anything. Comes from watching this woman who had maybe kind of like a, a secretarial degree that mm-hmm. you can get way back in the day. I don't even know if you could, they have that type of certificate now. That was a thing back then, yes. yeah. So mm-hmm. she did that and when my when my father passed away, like I think that's when she said, I gotta get a job. Like this is the job I'm gonna have. All right, I'm gonna make a career out of it. Like let's go. And it's that stick to witness that I believe is missing sometimes mm-hmm. because the situation is the situation, but we don't have to continue to stack things on top of each other to make it worse. So how can we control those impulses, that impulse to go buy something you don't need, that impulse to do something that's going to cause trouble? And causing trouble could be um, if uh, get into a fight, right? Get into a fight. You got to go to court. Something happens. I mean, when when I was growing up, a change of $50 was significant. 
Mm-hmm. A change of $75 was significant. I actually received a letter um, in high school as a football player. Um, so at the time, a blue chip All-American to be put into this kind of national database where college recruiting cost $75. So I, I got the letter. I'm happy about it. It's a great honor. I remember walking through the back of the building I'm, I lived in, and I literally tore up the letter and threw it in the garbage. Because I'm thinking, I don't know anything. We're not going to be get $75 yeah. to pay everybody. That one moment change, had a change in my overall career. Like, it did. And But that was a, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old making decisions mm-hmm. that I just really should not have been making at that stage. But I, I was doing what I thought was the right thing to do. So the more that we can educate folk, and I'm talking, it seems like we have to put more work in people much older than myself, more than even we have to put into our youth. And I'm not talking just from an urban perspective. I'm talking about um, across the social economic stratus. We have to really start to collectively look at how can we improve the lives of younger people? Like the, the opiate crisis, the like the the amount of, of, of suicide that's happening and especially in the black community, seeing with teens like the spike um, in, in suicide and things like that. It, it's um, it makes me know that we have a lot of work to do because as rough as things were in, in, our, in my community growing up, um, I can't think of one person I lost in that way. Mm-hmm. I lost people with senseless violence. But um, and all of it is bad. All of it is trauma. And trying to teach people better ways. How do we we grasp these young people and just hug them and just say it's okay? And through it all, I believe that's part of the part of my success has been people seeing this young guy, high school, I was 13 years old, my first semester, and teachers, coaches, principals, people in the community, just seeing something in me and just simply saying, Yeah, you're gonna be the one. You're gonna be the one. And I'm like, be the one to do what? Like, you're gonna be the one. And I, it didn't mean it didn't mean much to me because my family used to say that to me all the time. Mm-hmm. My oldest brother, when he had a child at 16, he was being recruited by some of the, the top teams in the country to go to college. Wow. So when he made a child, those scholarships came off the table. He ended up going to a smaller um, Division One school, played for two years, and that was it for him. My middle brother, he saw the um, the financial strain on the family, some of the decisions that were that were being made, and he went into the Marine Corps because mm-hmm. he said, "I want to be able to financially help as fast as possible." And then he he said, I'm, "It's coming to you. It's on you now." And I'm 13 years old, and he said, "It's coming to you." Um, but that was it. So in the community, and ha- I did have a sense of what's going on around me isn't correct. I wasn't judging it, but I knew it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And it took w- one of the starting points for this, this change in me was Miss um, O'Neill at Lincoln High School who simply had us um, recite a soliloquy from Hamlet. And six of those words are, to thy own self be true. And those six words out of 125 stuck with me. And those six words were the help, actually created the path for me. Because if I'm thinking about to thy own self be true, what does that mean? And so when I go outside and I look around and I see what's going on, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I know this is not right. So I got to say something about it. And whoa, that's when things started to really heat up for me. That social justice piece like just and that. But that also meant what was going on inside my house as well. Like all the love that was in there it was still a lot of dysfunction. And so just challenging everything I had around me is what helped me to continue to to survive as I was going through these different decisions, as I was making mistakes. I, mean, I was pretty much homeless at um in college when I first started. And three states away, um, my, my little car, if it breaks down, I had to find somewhere 
to staying, being a football player, being on a team, there were people who would let me stay in their room. But, you know, if the person goes into the cafeteria and can't sneak out any food, then I'm not eating that day. It was that type of thing. So tell me how you ended up at the college at St. Peter's. Um, I went to Virginia State University. Mm-hmm. I was preferred walk-on. I literally waited to the last minute. Um, there was some uh, scholarship offer from the University of Kansas mm-hmm. that was that was working out for me. But when the signing date came and I didn't make a decision, that was quickly gone. So you just... Just not... <laughs> yes, that's all I... Have. Okay, so there was scholarship opportunity on the table. Yes. Um, KU's a big, big uh, sports school, big football program. Unbelievable. Um, I've actually been to a KU game, believe it or not. And you had an opportunity. Had an opportunity. And what stopped you from making the decision? 17 years old. I mean, I played my senior season at 16. Mm-hmm. When it's time to make these decisions, um, I was in contact with um, with the coaching staff and different people. And to have a st- the way scholarships, the way it's handled now versus, wow, 20-something years mm-hmm. ago, it's just different. And I needed, I needed someone to guide me through the final steps. So we're talking about this scholarship, but you need to do this step and this step and sign, and then it's all said and done. Mm-hmm. And um, just waiting around to see what other people were going to do, to be very frank. Some of my friends just kind of, and it sounds crazy to say that to you now, but yeah, that's what I did. And um, University of Delaware was another opportunity. Mm-hmm. But by the time um, I started to connect with the university, I missed the deadline. So I was either, either I got rejected or I was on the wait list there. And um, so that didn't happen to me. So a, an assistant principal in the school tracked me down, knew that I didn't sign and said, hey, what are you going to do? Like, what's going on? And I was embarrassed. And he said, all right, here's an application for Virginia State University. Fill this out, send it in day before the deadline. I sent it in. I got accepted. Got in contact with um, the coaches staff. So I got this designation of a preferred walk-on, which means you don't have a scholarship, mm-hmm. but you go there and you you play well, you can earn a scholarship, which I ended up doing later on. But being on that campus, uh, my grandmother lived about 30 miles away from okay. there. So I did have a base, but I had, if that car broke down, that was it. I remember literally almost kind of like, um, I guess it's like panhandling. So I would be on campus and you know, back then, guys, wasn't that expensive, mm-hmm. but I only needed three dollars to get where I gotta go. To say, hey man, what's going on? Man, let me get a dollar, man. What's going on? Let me get this dollar. I need that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. And I did that every day. And that was just to get the gas money and go back and forth um to school. And then again, like I said, when the when the car broke down, that was it. I actually remember vividly um one moment and the car just wouldn't start for it. Mm-hmm. And I have been doing this this whole semester and I'm tired. Had a full day of practice and I'm just out of it. Like, I don't want to do this no more. I'm by myself. I'm in Virginia. I don't want to do this. But I got all these people at home for me just getting to that point. I had already made it. Like mm-hmm. that's For my neighborhood, it was just like, all right, you can come back home now. We good. Like, <laughs> right. You did that. Like, no, we good. But um, I just, I was tired. And the car wouldn't start. So I'm in the back seat of the car. It's night. And uh, I think that's, that's the moment I gave up. Mm-hmm. Like, that was it. And a guy walked by. And uh, actually, the part that, that, that sticks with me to this day is that there were multiple people who walked by who was on that team. And they saw me in the car. They stopped the, the check. Now, they're, they're not much older than me, so I'm not holding it against them. But no, nah, none of them, they walked by. But this one guy came by and he, he saw me in the backseat and he said, country, what you doing? And I said, oh, no, I'm all right. Everything's good. He said, no, 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 no. What you doing? He's like, all right, come with me. And um, he took me to his room. He, um, he went and got food from somewhere. And I was able to take a shower and um, I ate. And I, he's like, listen, I'm going to go stay somewhere else. You stay in my room tonight. And um, the next morning I got up, I went to the car, the car started up. 
I was able to continue on. But I literally quit in that moment. Mm -hmm. It was it. And I think that was God's way of just telling me, like, keep going. And still just not making the right decisions because I wasn't prepared to make right. the right decisions up to that point. So I was winging it. <laughs> I was going for it. But um, eventually um, just made a silly mistake and ended up, I was able to finish out the semester, but I would have had to sit out a year. Okay. Um, so I literally got kicked out of school. And um, so coming back home, I had, a, I had a couple of friends that was attending St. Peter's. It was in the community, about six blocks from where I grew up, where I grew, in, in my neighborhood, actually. And uh, a couple of guys was there, and I just said, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll take a look. Went to campus. The coach there already knew about me. He knew about me. He knew I, I left there. And um, he said, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I said, all right. And I, I brought, I still had all that anger with me. So I took Jersey City to Petersburg, Virginia. That's all I did. And as I, near the time I'm leaving Virginia, like, I'm, I'm, still, I'm a big kind of big guy now. Mm -hmm. And I, I got that Jersey City swagger and just aggressiveness. And um, when <laughs> when I see people who knew me from that time, I went to homecoming a few years ago and this one guy literally said to me like, wow, you still here? He said, man, I thought you'd be dead by now. And as, as someone who just met you, right? Because you've yeah. got this Zen, really yeah. grounded energy yeah. and the, you know, the nice blazer and, and yes, all of that yes. is hard to... Now, I hear a little bit in, in the way that you speak, right? We, we all have that. Those who grew up in Jersey, there's there's a tone <laughs> to yes. the way that we talk. So you can hear a little bit, but I would not peg you for someone who had that, uh, uh, you know, seek and destroy yeah. savagery yeah. about you. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I think that it's more, it's more people who fit in kind of my category. Mm -hmm. And it's that kid who's growing up and being forced to act in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have the courage to fight against it when I was younger. I wasn't big enough. I wasn't strong enough. And I just didn't have the courage. It's easier to blend in versus to stick out. I remember sitting in class my freshman year and looking at some of my friends who were struggling. And I literally used to act like I didn't know the work when I did. And because I didn't have the courage to, to do anything different. And what I what I realized, probably in my probably in my mid twenties or so, what I realized was that I was disrespecting my friends mm -hmm. because what I could have done was pull my friend to the side and said, "Look, I know you're struggling in reading. I'm really good in reading. Let me help you with that." Oh man, I, I'm pretty good in math. Let's work together, not in front of everybody, but pull a person to the side and do it because that's my friend. If that's my friend, why am I watch? Why am I going to watch my friend struggle? And years later, when I came back and I'm at St. Peter's, um, it was so interesting because up until recently, the campus wasn't gated, mm -hmm. so it's really an, an open space where people from the community walk in and out of the, of the college campus. But when you're from Jersey City, you know that St. Peter's is a place you just don't mess around. Yeah, it's kind of like an unwritten rule when you're from. From the neighborhood and I would come out of a classroom and I'm talking to a student and then someone would call me from the neighborhood like they walking up the block your country what's up so I would cold switch mm -hmm. so I would literally I'm talking in one manner and then I would turn to my friend and I would look at him and I'll say yo what's good man you know I'm gonna see you later yeah 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 I gotta do this man I got this yeah yeah yo you up here nah man you know I gotta do what I got mm -hmm. okay okay later and then I would turn back and then we saw back talking about economics whatever it may be. And again, it was one of those moments where I was disrespecting that person. I shouldn't have to code switch to talk to a person from my neighborhood. Like that was horrible on my part, but I didn't realize that too much later. And again, that, be, that helped me to start thinking about like, how do I pass that down? Because young people in my community should know they don't have to code switch. It's okay. There's, um, there's this researcher named um, Agbu. And in the late 70s, he... 
he coined this phrase acting white. And there's no such thing as acting white. Like there's no ethnic group that has the the corn that they've cornered the market on how to speak standard English or how to interact in a given circumstance. That don't belong to no one. That belongs to a person who's willing to educate themselves, mm-hmm. to understand whatever that community is or whatever that moment is. And um, so I had to get over that too. I had when I transferred. So I went from this all black environment to a predominantly white environment. So I had to figure all those things out. Like how do I how do I exist? because I'm still angry. Like, I'm still really, really mad. Mm -hmm. And I'm mad about all this baggage. I'm mad about all this trauma. I'm mad that I had to go through all this trauma. And now I'm sitting next to this kid from Bergen County, and this kid is mad because he didn't get the car he wanted for graduation. It's like, what? (laughs) But but that's, that's that young man's, that was his experience. So when I'm when I'm among these different chats or um, Facebook groups, because I'm a part of multiple, like one for Virginia State, the football team, mm-hmm. and one from St. Peter's and the football team in different communities. Um, I I tell these people like I didn't like you when I was in school. Like I wanted to rob you when I was in school. Like I was hungry, and you knew that. Like like don't play. Like let's don't let's don't rewrite history now. Let's don't rewrite you were the guy who was fighting the guy. Come on, you were mm-hmm. the quarterback. Like you we had, we protected you because we need you for the game. Like you ain't gonna be the one out there, you know, mixing it up and beating people. Come on, let's don't do that, right? Because you didn't have to do that, and that's great. I knew this one brother. Um, he I was just blown away by this guy because he had an entrepreneurial spirit where he was doing nails at, um, at a, think about this now, this is gangster. He was doing nails at a historically black college. Really? Yes. This, we talking 1989, 1990. And I should, and I, I'm telling you, on the team, we used to clown him about it. Of course. Of course you did. And think about A. But he was getting money. Getting yeah. money. And he had access to every woman <laughs> on campus. Like, I'm, I'm a fool. Like, shout outs to my guy. You know what I'm talking about. Like, it was just amazing. But I used to be mad at him because I felt like he had an upper hand that I did. Mm-hmm. I was mad at him because he knew how to tra- traverse into this world where it's just basically basically social cues. What I mean by that is I walk into the room and you say to me, how are you doing? And I say, I'm doing well. Depending on the person, that can put that person at ease because I'm a big guy, mm-hmm. right? I'm a little under 6'4", doing some change, right? <laughs> and when I walk in there, people are already intimidated. They hear the name, right? Because my name, Latoro Yates, and I walk in and like, whoa, like that's not, it doesn't match what they what they probably perceive the person gonna walk in, and then the guy who walks in. So I'm already dealing with that part. And then having this anger on my face was another part that so I used to, I used to mess up the moment, if you will, or make the moment uncomfortable before I even had a chance to speak. But I was upset because I didn't know that. I was upset because I didn't know the social cues, a strong handshake, eye contact. What those what those things can do, how to build relationships, how to talk to people, how to um, how to be engaging, how to simply say, okay, thank you. Versus why, why you want to give me that? Mm-hmm. What do you want? Like, I don't like what you want to do what for me? No, nah, that's okay. Because in my neighborhood, if you're not, if you don't act like the way we act, if you don't look the way we look, if you're not moving in the way we move it, we're not messing with you. At, at around 23, I had a formal wear tuxedo shop. And actually, yeah, 23. I graduated from college. A good friend, his, his um, mother was part owner of this uh, tuxedo franchise. Mm-hmm. I worked there for a year out of college, got a chance to open up my own in, um, in Jersey City. So you were a franchisee yes. at, at 23? Yeah, 23, 24 mm-hmm. years old. And um, 
You know, it's interesting. You have Jersey City's kind of, I guess, Wall Street. You can call it Wall Street East. Yeah. And so we had all these um, executives that were coming to the shop. And I created something pretty clever. I call it the um, executive package. So basically, if you come in, I'll take the measurements and I'll keep it on file. So you could rest assured, if you need a tux, you don't even have to come to the shop. You call me. I have the measurements. I have it waiting for you. You come and pick it up. And the rest is history. Mm -hmm. Good service. So I would have people come in and say, well, Toro, wow, you did all this by yourself? Listen, why don't you try this stock? Or why don't you, here's a, here's a, um, here's a phone number, call this person, and here's another job. All these, these type of things were happening for me. And I, <laughs> I used to look at these people, majority of them were white who came into the place, but I used to look at them with just such a look of disgust. Like, like, imagine like this person <laughs> is giving me the opportunity to primarily change my life. And I had this look on my face like, like, why you want to do that? Mm-hmm. Versus just saying, OK, thank you. But again, that's that anger. That's that trauma. And as I move in life, it's so easy to see that that trauma in people. Right. It's, it's almost like being able to look around and see someone that's whole because we all have something that we're working on and we're right. trying to figure out and we're trying to grow through. So I'm not speaking to you as a person who I think is whole or completely healed, but I'm healing. And um, but sometimes my wife and I, we sit around and we just we think about it just like, man, like it is so much trauma that's around and to see people in their 50s and 60s and 70s who are dealing with this trauma for all that time and mm-hmm. burden for all that time. But sometimes we just have to forgive and move on. So through everything I've went through, everything I continue to go through, it's about how do I um, walk in an example for younger people. My niece, I have um, I have six, I have six nephews and nieces, and I want to say maybe four or five great mm-hmm. nephews and nieces. And for the ones that are in their mid-20s now on down, going to college is a regular thing. Right. But that's because Uncle Doctor, they called me, right? Uncle Doctor did it. Like So for them, they're just, yeah, I'm going to college. And I have one niece in particular. Uh, she started battling cancer when she was 12. And she's just at a point where I believe it's something she's going to deal with for the rest of her life, mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's not in her system in the way it was before. And when that young lady was going through high school, because it happened right before she started to go to high school, and going to college for her, like, she's just worried about how I'm going to live. Right. Well, that's what she used to do. But now she's finishing up uh, a, a master's degree. Wow. Now she said to me, she said... Um, she said, Unc, I'm, I'm going to leave that doctor thing to you. <laughs> this master's is enough for me. But the fact that she's even considering doing a doctoral program where you go back 10 years ago, she wasn't even thinking about going to school at all. Mm-hmm. And then I have one, one that's a, two that are sophomores and one a junior in high school where, again, going to college is, a, is that's a given. And it's amazing. Like, <laughs> One person can make a shift because my oldest brother made that shift. Right. And my oldest brother, um, some could argue that he didn't maximize everything that he had available to him. Because my brother graduated high school in 1984. But in Spartanburg, South Carolina, there are still people who talk about the way he played football at 16 to 17, 18 years old. And without him sacrificing for me, I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. That that's real. So he did maximize, but he made a, he made a, a fundamental decision that I need to, in essence, come home and be around to make sure this young guy makes it through. So anything that I accomplish, I accomplish for 
Sadie, my family, my brothers, um, they're, they're my fathers. And I just try to carry on a tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not perfect. Like I always tell people that I'm in their lives and I may one day do something to um, disappoint you. But understand that it wasn't from my heart, in my heart to do something to disappoint you. So it's done out of love. So if it's done out of love, we can work through it. We can figure it out. Mm-hmm. But I'm not perfect. So recognizing your own humanity, but having at that point, you know, being 23, 24, you had already gone farther than your parents had gone. 100%. And even if you didn't have the circumstances that you you grew up in, let's say you, you grew up with two parent home mm-hmm. who, you know, were wholly upper middle class. To be a franchisee at that age would have been commendable yeah. then, right? So to yeah. have done it with those circumstances, yeah. I'm sure the people from your community are looking at you like, you made it. Like, yeah. you, you you did it. You're a business owner. You're making it happen. What made you say, there's additional chapters to my career and there's advanced education that I, I want to get? What made you make those decisions to go sure. to pivot and go in another direction? Well, um, I didn't I didn't enjoy working at a tuxedo shop mm-hmm. and I did not enjoy owning a tuxedo shop. And the reason why I didn't enjoy it was because, and this may sound odd, I didn't want to make money off of my community. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to do that. Like I, I remember I could, I was, I had a, tu- a tuxedo special. So for the prom, I would lower the tuxedo down to $99. And that classic a, prom special. Let's get it. <laughs> and there was a, um, a family that came in and I knew this family. It was from um, this project in Jersey City. I know the circumstances, or I knew the circumstances of that of that family. They bought this young man a fake $500 Versace shirt to go with a $99 tuxedo, limousine, mm-hmm. everything. And I used to be in the store trying to dial back what that final sale was going to be. <laughs> right. Because I really opened this place because I wanted people in my community to have a, we didn't, because we're from the position of Jersey City, there's one town over Bayonne. And Bayonne back in those days was predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And from Jersey City, we would have to go to this one place in Bayonne. And the owner of that establishment, now I'm going back to my youth, Just did, I just felt like he didn't really want us there. Mm-hmm. Like he would take the money, but he, he could care less if we came in there or not. So for me, I wanted to create a place where people in my community could have somewhere to go and they could get the type of stuff they want and they could feel good about it and enjoy the experience. So... But from a profit margin, it wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do. But I actually did pretty well during that time. But I I just didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy seeing people spend way more than they they could afford to spend. And then, actually, I'm I'm glad you asked that because it's something that I I had in mind to say, and I, I haven't at this moment. But at each stage of my, as I started to succeed in different ways, it started to create this separation from some family, from some friends. And it was weird to me because I've always been team Mm -hmm. everybody. Like I've always had this large group of people that were around me. But the more I started to accomplish certain things, like when I graduated and I I graduated, but I'm mad because I I didn't get that job out of college and make 75,000, go take over the world. So I'm mad about that. But I get into this um, working at the the, the franchise and then get the opportunity to open my own. Um, At that point, my mother moved down south. So it's myself and my cousin taking over the apartment I grew up in. I mean, we are starving. Mm -hmm. We are hungry. Like it's, and people, and some people in the community were looking at us, as you said, like I made it. I'm like, no, man, I'm hungry right now. (laughs) Like we we are ready to rob and steal again. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, to me, it seemed like I just kept going back to almost to that rob and steal. But that's another way of saying that it's survival. Yeah. 
I just couldn't understand that if I'm in survival mode, like everyone else, why are people looking at me different? Mm -hmm. Couldn't understand it. Like it, it just blew me away. But as I continue to just grow, what I realize is that there are some people who enjoy misery. That's true. They enjoy the trauma. They don't want to grow. They don't want to grow from that trauma. They don't want to grow from that experience. And proverbially, people just tap out. And if someone taps out and I keep going, yeah, there's going to be a difference. Or if I keep going and someone goes right into the workforce and they make X amount, if I keep going, I keep acquiring the degrees and I keep moving in a certain way, eventually I'm going to catch them and I'm going to pass them. That's just a part of it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking at it that way. I remember the, um, the first time um, someone from my neighborhood uh, made $50,000 in a year. I was blown away by that. Like, I was ready to celebrate. Like, we are partying. Like, this is crazy. Like, we are ruling the world right now. And years later, um, when I started to catch that person, if you will, and, and move past that person, if you will, it started to change. Like, the person was, it seemed like my community, what aspects of my community was happy during the building process. Mm -hmm. But when I got to a certain point, it was like, all right, you got to go now. So what do you mean I got to go? Like, this is, this is it. Like, I'm here. Like, nah, you got to go. I still have the past, if you will. I go to my, I'm, I'm in my neighborhood all the time. I'm on a board at the Salvation Army in my community. I do fundraisers for Lincoln High School football team mm -hmm. every year. I'm just there. I get phone calls all the time about something's going on and it's still a relationship and let's fix it. Let's, let's move. Try this person, contact this person, what have you. But fundamentally, I started to receive hate in a way that it just... I just couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember um, going back to the tuxedo shop. I remember a very good friend of mine who, when I was running the shop, he would literally walk on the other side of the street versus walk on the same side of the street and walk by the store. You walk by the store, we're going, hey, what's going on? We're going right. to talk. We're going we gonna <laughs> to proverbially chop it up a little bit. But he wouldn't even walk on the same side of the street at the store. Like, I'm not trying to sell you anything. Like, just like, right. we, to, to have your own business, as you, as you know, to be able to open the gate of your own business, it's a scary thing. Yeah. Because you have no idea what's going to happen when that door is open. And to see so many people that are so excited for me, but the people who I really wanted to be excited for me, a lot of them wasn't. Mm -hmm. And um, my wife and I continue to kind of have that experience and to the point that we we truly like spending this time with each other and just staying home because um, I'm not in competition with anyone. I don't want to be in competition with anyone. I think all success is dope. Yeah. But a lot, there are some people who don't think that way. So going back to 13, there were people competing with me at 13. It's like, I'm not competing. I didn't know what the hell competing was, excuse my language. Mm -hmm. Like, I just didn't. Like, and, but they were always competing. I mean, you could literally walk into Walmart and see people competing. So it's like, we're both in Walmart. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> whatever reason we are both here, we are both in Walmart. So you can't be better than me because we are both here. <laughs> we're both in the same space. But from the bag that the person has on, from the, the swag, the way they're walking, the, 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 the facial expression, you can tell that person's making a value judgment. And I'm like, wow. So it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So how do, you, how do you prevent people from slowing themselves down? So, so you're, that, you're that teacher and you're telling me, that you can make it and here's what you have to do. But in doing that, I know I got to leave. Because I told you, I made it to a certain point. Right. I said, I got I to go. But I've, I've, I figured that out when I was 13. Like, man, like if, 
I just knew I was going to have to leave one day. I didn't mm-hmm. want to leave. I don't want to. I didn't want to leave my mother. I didn't want to leave my brother. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave my community. And they were kicking me out. They were saying, you got to go. Mm-hmm. You're the one. You got to go. And I could tell you a conversation. And Sadie and I were having a conversation. And I realized the moment I was making more money than her. And um, we're talking about it. And we're both about to go to work. And she brought up something, you know, making X amount of um, a year, man. She said, I ain't never thought I would make that. Mm-hmm. And she laughed about it. And I was like, yeah, mom, because I, and I stopped. And she looked at me a little strange and I literally almost started crying. And she was just like, what's wrong with you? She said, understand something. That's why we put that time and energy mm-hmm. in you. It's okay. Like that's, she said, that's what you're supposed to do. But imagine those conversations with some parents that are broken. Right. And what they do to those children in those conversations. And feeling like they're owed something. Yeah. yeah. So um, I just think it's just a gumbo. Like that gumbo has trauma in it. It has success in it. It has hate in it. It has all these different variables. And it's up to each and every person to be able to make that gumbo into a dish. Like, how do we how do we do that? Like, how do we make it something that I'm going to be able to digest? Something that I'm going to be able to, the, nu- the right nutrients I'm going to pull from that and, and help me become the person I want to be. So speaking of becoming, yes, you eventually obtained your doctorate. Yes. What does your current career path look like? My ultimate goal is I want to become a college president. Mm-hmm. So I'm the executive director for enrollment management um, with your college, which is a part of the City University of New York. What would make sense for me is to the next iteration would be a vice president of student development slash enrollment management. And then from there, start to um, look for opportunities to become a college president. And um, it's so it's so interesting to think. I started talking about becoming a college president when I was an admissions counselor. Mm-hmm. I started in 1997. And an admissions counselor and a college president are two totally different, <laughs> two right. different tracks. Like, and I don't, I don't know why I started saying I want to become a college president. My career is moving in the right direction. And um, you know, it's in God's hand when time comes. Mm-hmm. So in addition to working in academia, you also do a lot of motivational speaking. Yes. Can you talk about that? I will speak anywhere. <laughs> if it's one person and they need me to come, I'm going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing it for, I actually started doing it when I was in college and going back to the neighborhood and talking to kids in the neighborhood and understanding that responsibility that I have to go back to the neighborhood because the little kids were watching and to me, to be an effective motivational speaker, you have to walk and live in what you're taught. Mm-hmm. Because if not, where I'm from, those kids are going to look right through. Right. So um, I do. I try to do a lot as, as much as possible, but it takes a lot out of you. Because when I, when I first started doing these speeches, I really just talked about the pain aspect of it. And it used to drain me every time. Mm-hmm. And then I got to a point where I didn't want to just talk about the pain all the time. So I started saying to, in speeches that I'm not here to speak to you simply from a tribal standpoint. And that tribe is pain. So how do we take that pain and then start looking at ways that we can move from it and start to grow? Know that it's okay to move from it and start to grow. And I've actually started to try to narrow down the speaking opportunities because I still get a lot of them. Mm-hmm. But I, um, I just can't do as many as I used to. So now I'm trying to be just a little bit more discernment and how I want to project myself out mm-hmm. and the opportunities to have the maximum reach as far as when I when I um, do a speaking engagement. So I will speak anywhere. It's easy to find. Mm-hmm. But um, I talked earlier about passing the baton. 
I've been working in um, higher education for over 20 years, and it becomes tiring when you are running into that wall. And the wall is trying to help someone. If I can break a little crack in that wall, then that person who I'm trying to help can see that light mm-hmm. and run through it. But so many times, just seeing over and over and over lost opportunities or seeing dreams deferred, and it just takes away. So I think it's um, it's so many young younger Latoros that's out there, especially in Jersey City. Mm-hmm. So, outstanding young men who are in the community and they have a way of connecting to this younger generation that I I don't. And I think that's amazing. So I partner with these young guys and I'm ready. I'm more than ready to pass the baton to them and work with them and help to cultivate them because a lot of it is, um, as I mentioned to you earlier, it's those social cues is how to be able to get into the door. Um, A lot of, a lot of these young men I'm mentioning are on that path of learning impulse control and learning how to craft their message in a way that's going to be palatable to a broader audience. I speak directly to my community, but the message is for a broader audience. So I enjoy motivational speaking. I It's so interesting to try to, how do you reshape the same message over and over and over? Mm-hmm. You talk to anyone from Jersey City who know me, they're going to say Sadie, Lincoln High School, <laughs> Jersey City. I mean, I beat that drum. And but how do you say it over and over and over and over again? And it and it start because I, I don't want it to lose the strength mm-hmm. of the message. But I also just don't want to talk about the pain all the time. So I spent a lot of times talking about therapy and it's and when I spoke to that group I mentioned uh, from Baltimore and I, I, I talked about the therapy part and afterwards it was so many of those young kids that came up to me and just said, wow, you go to therapy? I said, yes, mm-hmm. I said, that's cool. And I, and I, I feel like I ignited something in, in them to try to heal. And that's, um, that's what the motivational speaking is all about, just trying to create opportunities for people to heal and let them know I'm broken. Like as much as I'm in front of you and I may be deemed a success, I'm still broken. I'm still trying to heal. I'm still trying to grow. I'm still trying to be better. And my prayer every morning is just that I can walk as an example for my neighborhood. Right. And and I think there's such a focus on the part of motivational speaking that has been monetized and is a huge multimillion dollar industry where people are focused on this concept of, quote, living your best life and how do you maximize your day and how do you accomplish more by 8 a.m. than a normal person and and all these things that that sell because we all want to be the the mega successful Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. And we feel like we've got to read the books and hear the talks and get motivated in that way without dealing with the the pathologies and the things underneath that really need to change to not only reach certain levels of success, but also being able to thrive in them. Yes. Because a lot of people are very successful and very broken internally. Um, And it's also unrealistic. Mm-hmm. For so many people, it's it's almost like um, when I was a, a younger recruiter and I would go to a school and I would talk to a, a, a young man and the young man would say, I'm going to go to Duke and play basketball. I'm like, that's awesome. You definitely could do that. Do you play on your high school team now? No. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you play AAU basketball? No. So then how are you going to, wait a minute, have you ever played basketball? <laughs> no. So then how do you expect to be able to earn a basketball scholarship to go to Duke? But there are, there are people, there are some people out there that have this, uh, this thought of grandeur without putting the work in. Mm-hmm. My, um, my oldest brother, when I first started working in admissions, and I probably was about two years in, he said to me, all right, 
you just finished the master's degree. So right now you have four degrees. You, you, you got it. You're moving. You're ready. You, you, you got the, you're running your tuxedo shop. You're doing it. He said, all right, so give me 20 more years. <laughs> I said, what? 20? Because 20, I, I mean, actually, I probably start buying into the, the, the press clippers a little bit. It's right? <laughs> like 20 years? Wow. But, it, but I grew up in that generation was like, all right, that's shocking. That sounds horrible. But I'm going to trust you and I'm just going to go. Let's go. All right, I'm going to do it. I don't know if that's still executed in the same way with people who are on that track. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, if you figure the median income in the United States household income is probably about $58,000 a year. So anything over $58,000 a year, you're winning. Right. I mean, the grand scheme of things, depending on the level of degree attainment, is the amount of money that a person can make lifetime earnings. I mean, you have your examples that are on the extremes, but the majority of people, we're going to work very hard, probably work two jobs. Every other year, we could take a decent vacation, maybe once a month, go to a movie, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. We're going to invest in our children, make sure that they have the best education possible. But all of us are not going to be Oprah. All of us are not going to be President Obama. Right. We could strive for it, and I want to push that, but... Let's be realistic about what what we're willing to work to achieve. I mean, you see a lot of young people and they have they they have the dream. They want to be entrepreneurs. I get it. And I'm supportive. Did you take a business class? Like, how are you going to do that? How? Why don't you take this certificate program to learn how to, to build a business plan, to be able to give the elevator pitch, to get the funding, to be able to open? And it's just like, like no, I'm not doing any of that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to post a video and this thing is going to happen. So to me, I think a reset needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to sound like that proverbial old man feel. I <laughs> on the porch. <laughs> five miles in the snow to be able to do it. But the bottom line is investing in education. It took me over 20 years to be able to do it. And to get to this uh, doctor phase of my life. And it's awesome on this mm-hmm. side. <laughs> right. doctor, I can't say that. But the work that it took to get here, the sacrifice, um, I don't know. Man, if the 17-year-old Latoro, if you asked, if I knew the work that it would take to get to this goal, I don't know if I would have done that. Mm-hmm. It was it was a lot. But um, the parts of growing up in Jersey City, that survival did help later on. When I was able to turn that survival over and, and flip the switch a little bit. And once I started to control my impulses, once I started to not question why someone wants to help me and just receiving the help, when I started to um, humble myself, Drop the ego a little bit. All those things, things started to become a little bit easier. So tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Sure. So I worked at a middle school in Newark, New Jersey. And that alone is being extraordinary on an ordinary day. (laughs) But go ahead. Yeah, so it was was an independent day school, private school. Mm -hmm. And it took students from um, at adverse, at-risk backgrounds and put them in this kind of an incubator for two years and would then send them off to some of the top independent day and boarding schools in the country. Nice. So um, in the school, it was this one kid. He was pretty tall for his age and he looked kind of older. He was in seventh grade. The kid stared at me all the time. And then one day, a teacher came up to me and said, um, a young, the young man, he wants, to, he wants to ask you a question, but she gave me the background. And the background was the, the young man walked up to her and said, how do I become a man like, uh, like Mr. Yates? She said, well, why don't you ask him? He's scared to death. Again, he's in seventh grade. He's already 6'2", but he's still seventh grade. Mm-hmm. 
So he worked his way over to come in to talk to me and he asked a question and he was scared to death. And from that moment on, we just had, we built a relationship. And through through eighth grade and he went off to high school and I, I served in a father figure role for him. He's now two-time graduate from college. Um, he's a college coach, basketball coach. He has a, a small son of his own and he's a grown man. And why I chose that moment is because when I when I had that conversation with him, it made it it made it very easy for me to think about myself mm-hmm. because at at seventeen at the exit day at the high school there was a man who walked on stage. His name was Dr. Robert Perry, and Dr. Perry, it was something about this man that when he walked into the building, people were alert, like they almost were like saluting this man when he mm-hmm. walked. In. Black man, I never I never seen a black man receive that type of attention, respect, um, and. So I just, I just, I just thought it was because he was a doctor. So at 17 years old, I said, I'm gonna become a doctor one day. So that moment of seeing Dr. Perry on that stage, do my mic check, Dr. Robert Perry, and he walked off. That planted the seed for me to become a doctor. Now, as I became older, I realized he was visible. As African-Americans, sometimes society can have a way that we're not visible to people. Mm-hmm. Like we're walking by and we're interacting, we're sitting at the table, but we're still not visible. And what I realized is for that young man, I was visible for him. So the same way that Dr. Perry unknowingly created this doctor, and I was able to tell him probably about 25 years later, but that, just that realization about being visible and what that what that meant to me and how I could pass that to someone else. And um it it was just like one is one reoccurring day, one long day. But that's that moment where I felt like, wow, I can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And by making myself visible, uh, I didn't know becoming Dr. Gates would make like that. Actually, I think I was probably working toward that visibility from day one, but the more the degrees have some way, some people react to degrees kind of in this kind of weird way. But yeah, so when I walk into a room, what people don't understand, I'm walking in a room with Jersey, Jersey City walking in a room, mm-hmm. right? Pineview Hills in South Carolina is walking, Miller family is walking in a room. That's Willie walking in a room, not the doctor part. Oh, we're going to do the doctor thing? That's for me. That's what I do. But we're going to do that. Other than that, I'm the tall. I'm that kid from Jersey City who grew up in a single parent household that went to a public high school and through a long, arduous road, somewhat figured it out. And um, that's it. So before we let you get out of here, there's one thing I do want to touch on because there there are people, young men who may hear this and say, I get it. I have to present myself a certain way. I have to make myself palatable. But why do I have to take my Tims off to do that? Isn't that respectability politics? What do you say to that? You have to be in a room and and have a seat at the table to be able to make a change. By not having access to get into the room, um, you're cutting off that opportunity to expand the dialogue or to be able to ask a person that. You don't have to take the Timberlands off. I mean, I don't wear them now, but because I'm Dr. Yakes, I probably could wear more now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, but yeah, I, I get that question because the more I started to progress, I really thought every time I when every time I controlled that impulse, I felt like a little piece of me was was going away. Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, mm-hmm. but that's why it's important for us to really pull that young person to the side and say, who you are is what's on the inside. It's not what's on the outside. That's a uniform. Now, 
you could wear that uniform anytime you want. But if you're trying to walk up into an environment and the stage is set, the social cues are there, like the, the environment is there. If you want to walk into that environment and you want to walk in it that way, then own that environment. If you own it, you can set the stage of how people, how you walk in. Mm-hmm. If you don't, you have to play by the rules until you're able to, to move up in the organization or in the situation where you impact change. But I fully understand that. And when I walk in my neighborhood, it's funny because I wear a jacket on the weekends. People look at me like a crazy. <laughs> like, what are you doing? But this, I feel comfortable. It's 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 uh, to that own self be true. I tell that young brother, keep your Tims on. But I would ask that brother a question. If I asked, if I told that young man, if you take if you take your Timberlands off for one moment and put on a pair of shoes and walk into that room and it would be the difference in you getting a job, would you do it? The young me would probably say no, mm-hmm. but that's why I take the, the the current version of me to pull that person to the side and say, it's okay. It's okay. Like, take the Tims off, put your shoes on, put the tie on, let's get this money, right? How they say, let's get this bag, <laughs> right? That's a, I think that's what they say. But um, let's get the money and then you could do whatever you want to do. You could buy more Tims. The funny thing is, once I started to grow, and that's mentally, physically, spiritually, I started to realize I don't need the uniform. That's the funny part. I told you I took Jersey City with me all these different places. Let me tell you how, why that's so disrespectful, why that's horrible. Because I took the negative connotation of Jersey City. In my neighborhood, there were lawyers, there were doctors. You got Ma Bush there. You got all these wonderful people. But I took the stereotype with me. So when I went to these different places, and I'm not the person, I wasn't the uniform I was wearing when I'm out in public. I'm not that person. When I go home, I'm not that person. So we have to teach, um, I think it would be important to teach that young person, don't make the mistakes I did. The mistakes I did was connecting, like taking the bravado out of a situation, taking that bravado and making it to who you are. If you're not that, you're not that. I mean, I made living on Bentley Avenue in Jersey City. It was a tenement building, mice, roaches, all of it. Like somehow I made that into like, that made me into a man. Mm-hmm. Not, none of that made me into a man. Like dodging the the situations that I was in growing up and seeing the things, that didn't make me a man. None of that made me a man. So why was I so willing to put on that, that badge of negativity and walk around with my chest out? So now when I say I'm from Jersey City, people have to look at me differently because Jersey City produced that guy. He produced that doctor. Wow. Right. So if it could produce that doctor, what about all these other people that are coming through? I stand on the shoulders of all the teachers, um, police officers, all the, the garbage men in the community. My my good friend father was a garbage man in the community. Right. So I stand on their shoulders. And what I'm trying to do is just um, now represent the community in a different way. And I hope that um, young people that are coming through and um, coming through the community are looking at it. Oh, I can at least help to expand their worldview or that lens just a little bit so they can see that there's hope. That's what I hope. I, I hope that I'm a representation for people in the community that if you put that time in, if you walk in that in this certain direction, this path and you release some of that anger that you can make it. I think that's a good place to end. Where can people find you online? Um, I'm very easy to find. You can just Google my name. Mm-hmm. You see um, all the dip. You can see speeches. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, my um, yeah, I think that's the, the the easiest route. Just just Google. Right? <laughs> Google me. Like I, that that made me sound like I was so big time. <laughs> just Google me. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you um and the way to be able to contact me, if mm-hmm. you click on some of the videos and different things. It always has all my contact Got information. It. And if someone from your audience contact you and want to get in contact with me, you have my information. I have no problem with you sharing my information. 
awesome. You you still have some Jersey City swag. I just want to say that. It, it's refined, but it's there. It is there for sure. And it, we have to have it. We have to. Like it again, it would it would be equally disrespectful if I don't if I don't ride for the people who helped me get here. Mm-hmm. I'm riding for them and they riding for me. That's why I can go back to my neighborhood. And I'm always be that. I can tell for sure. There's an authenticity there. To our listeners, especially those of you who work in education and uh, academia who who are looking for speakers to come in to be a positive role model, especially for our young men of color, please check out Dr. Dr. Yates online. Remember to like, share, subscribe, tell your friends about this episode. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.